Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today on our panel, we have the amazing Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. And I'm Joe Eames. I'll be your host today. And as our special guest, we have the fantastic Richard Feldman. Hey, <laughs> nice to be here. I'm loving my uh, alliteration and my uh, introductions. I should have given myself something. Um, the inevitable Joe Eames. <laughs> Wow, I don't even know that word. It's a, it's a good one. I just busted it out. <laughs> yeah, you did. You just laid down some knowledge on us. All right. This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. So Richard, I can't imagine that there's tons of people who don't know who you are, but it still would be a fantastic idea to have you introduce yourself, what you do, and uh, why anybody would, why everybody really wants to hear this show because of who you are and your work, and then we'll dig into uh, our topic today. Oh man, no pressure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm Richard. Um, I work at NORAD Inc. I, I'm actually, I, I recently got a promotion. I'm now head of technology, which is a, a new thing for me. But prior to that, I mean, I, I did a lot of like programming for them. I've been here about five years. Almost all of that has been, you know, like in the trenches, web app development. But I guess uh, what I'm most known for is uh, my work with Elm. So I'm on the Elm core team. I am the author of Elm in Action from Manning Publications. I do the uh, Elm course on front end masters. And uh, I'm the author of, well, I guess I, I'm in charge of uh, Elm test and Elm CSS as like uh, notable Elm packages. So I've done a lot of Elm stuff, and I guess like I, I give a lot of Elm talks at conferences. So a lot of people, I guess, in, in reference to like why people might already know me, is they might have seen me uh, give an Elm talk at a conference. Awesome. Before we dig into our topic of Elm, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what No Red Ink is and how their involvement uh, with both Richard and with Elm. Yeah, totally. Um, so involvement with me is, I mean, I just, I joined like five years ago. Um, it was a really small team back then. It was uh, like three programmers and I was the front end team. And now it's grown, like now we're about an order of magnitude bigger, I guess, because we have about 32 people in the engineering department now. And we're still hiring, by the way. So uh, <laughs> check that out. Basically, we make software for English teachers. So our mission is unlock every writer's potential. So we specifically help English teachers teach English. Um, we're not into like essay grading or like natural language processing, stuff like that. It's, it's about helping give teachers tools to do a better job teaching. So the company was founded by a former English teacher who basically wished that all of these tools existed when he was in the classroom. And he eventually decided to leave teaching to try and help other teachers. I've been working there for about five years now, and we have become the largest uh, Elm code base in the world, as far as we know. Um, we're almost at 300,000 lines of Elm code. We've been running it in production since 2015. And uh, <laughs> uh, until last year, I could say we had no runtime exceptions uh, in that whole time. But now I can't say that anymore, uh, unfortunately. But uh, very close to no runtime exceptions, I, I can still say. And uh, we hired, at the beginning of 2016, we hired Evan Chaplicki, who's the creator of Elm. Um, and he works here full-time and has been since January 2016 on, he, basically, he just does Elm development full-time, 100% open source. So we're making a very direct financial investment in open source by paying him to keep developing it. That's awesome. So um, 
I'm curious. You said 300,000 lines of Elm code. Is there like a ratio of Elm to non-Elm lines of code, kind of like dog years, right? Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, so we, we definitely still have some legacy JavaScript code, but I mean... Like really front-end development at no rating means writing Elm code all day. Um, mm-hmm. Like really, basically nobody writes any JavaScript at all. The only exceptions would be if you need to like reach for interop uh, to do something um, or if you need to like for some reason make a tweak to some legacy thing that's like a small enough thing that it's not worth rewriting in Elm. But pretty much all the substantial parts of our app that we modify on a regular basis, either we made them in Elm to begin with or we were like, okay, uh, we need to make substantial enough changes that we're going to rewrite it in Elm. So uh, I don't know what the exact ratio is, but I mean, if you were starting at no writing today, the amount of like the ratio of Elm to JavaScript writing would be like 99.9% Elm to like 0.1% JavaScript. Gotcha. Cool. Well, let's talk about Elm a little bit. Uh, since the last time you, uh, we were, you were on, you guys had a pretty major uh, release, right? Yes. Yeah. So Elm 0.19 came out. I got a link in the show notes to the uh, blog post kind of talking about what's new there. Uh, I would say the, the, the there's a couple of um, banner features, but I think the, the main thing that was relevant to us is a little bit different than the main thing that's relevant to like most other new projects. So for us, the big deal was the compiler got much faster. I actually need to put together a blog post on like our before and after numbers. I, uh, that's like one of, that's on my to-do list, but I haven't written it yet. But basically, I mean, it, it chopped like something like 20 minutes off of our builds. Um, it was like a really, like Elm used to be the bottleneck, whereas now it's like our Ruby unit test of the bottleneck um, as far as like things running in parallel. Like it dropped so much that it's not even on the hot path anymore, which is great because uh, that was like, you know, kind of the main downside of Elm for us at the time. Um, and now that downside is just gone. The other big feature in Elm 0.19 is um, asset size. So it now does a lot of really interesting um like techniques to make it so that not only does it output smaller assets, but it also outputs smaller assets that are better able to be minified by like Uglify or Google Closure Compiler or whatever uh, the case may be to the point where we now have, um, so the Elm SPA example uh, is the one that the blog post talks about, which is basically um, the real world app, which is this uh, sort of, medium clone basically it's like implemented in like javascript and angular and uh, react and elm and there's a bunch of different implementations mm-hmm. and um I'm, I'm familiar with the real world uh revo yeah <laughs> uh so basically uh w- when we upgraded it from elm 0.18 to 0.19 the the asset size for that um the entire application which is like depending if you're using react angular or um view all, all of those were between like 70 and like 105 kilobytes that's like minified and gzipped for the entire application uh the elm one's like 29 kilobytes for for the same app and we were like pretty surprised by that um we didn't know it was going to be that dramatic but because like that's like smaller than just react like minified and gzipped so it was really cool to see uh because evan put a bunch of time into like making asset sizes smaller because that was Mm. a piece of feedback that we heard was um like bigger companies were saying like hey we're interested in elm but uh we're really concerned about asset sizes for mobile well now now that's no longer hopefully no longer a concern for them (laughs) that's awesome yeah that's awesome so um is that pretty much all the stuff that uh, happened in 019 is that um, I would say those are the two big ones. I mean, there are a few other like minor things, but like the the, the blog post kind of goes into it. And then there's like release notes on like, like some of the libraries changed a little bit. Some of the like compiler details changed a little bit. But I mean, by and large, I, I think those are the kind of like the main takeaways. 
How much time does that represent? Like how many months went in between 019 and the previous release before that? Oh, wow. Um, a lot. Uh, I think it was like something along the lines of like 18 months. Um, wow. Well, before the, the previous major release, like there were like, you know, library releases and stuff. But because right. I mean, basically, Evan pretty much like rewrote the entire compiler piece by piece for speed. So like he rewrote the parser and then he rewrote the type checker. He rewrote the exhaustiveness checker and like the emitter and, and all of those things. Like and then by the end, they were all a lot faster and like worked better together for speed and made smaller assets. Uh, but it was like a very like, you know, at what point uh, in like rebuilding the ship plank by plank, is it no longer the same ship anymore? I don't know, but right. uh, it's still, uh, it's still like checks Elm programs and, you know, emits JavaScript, but um, it does it uh, pretty differently <laughs> under the hood now. <laughs> that actually brings me to like, maybe a, I don't know, we're diverging here with my question, but we can circle back, I guess, if we want to. Is there ever any fear that with how involved he is that he's ever going to like burn out on it are there other people that are almost as involved i mean you're obviously very involved but how does he stay from keeping burned out on all of this since this is like really his baby that's a great question the main thing is that evan's definitely like the person who works on the compiler i mean there have been like other pretty minor contributions but as far as like overhauling a section i don't think that's ever been done by anyone but evan yeah kind of makes yeah which which makes sense because it's it's a really specialized like piece of software and knowledge. It's like how many people in the world have like professionally maintained a compiler? It's like okay, that's a very small number of programmers. It's like a very very niche activity for not a lot of people to have experience in. And then it's like okay, on top of that, we're talking about like Hindley Milner type inference as opposed to like subtyping and like classical OO. So okay, narrow it down even more. Also, yeah. the compiler is written in Haskell. So okay, yeah. even smaller. And then eventually it's like, okay, so actually, and then like how many people who are doing all that are like interested in working on a compiled to JavaScript language? And now like the Venn diagram is so small, it's like pretty much. Yeah. Just so yeah, like because the community, it seems like there's a lot of very diehard people, but has anybody ever like raised that question of what happens if something oh, yeah. happens to him or he gets burned out or all the time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely like people, you know, ask about that. So uh, there's like a few answers to that question. So one is that Evan definitely like the, the person who works on the compiler, but there's a bunch of us who do other stuff. So like I maintain Elm tests, which is like the, 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 the testing solution that everybody uses. Evan doesn't really work on that at all. Uh, same thing with like Elm CSS, which is kind of the big, like, you know, uh, compile like CSS and JavaScript. Except I do remember us talking about that a long time ago. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's going strong still. Um, and that's, you know, also like completely off his plate. And there's like basically other parts of the ecosystem that are really just like Evan's very hands off with. So he's kind of like got his niche with like the compiler and like the standard libraries. But beyond that, it's, it's pretty like, I don't know, like spread out, like distributed among several different people, um, like what things are handled by whom. And I think to your question of burnout, honestly, I think that the things that just just knowing Evan personally, that like burn him out are actually not like working on the compiler. It's it's honestly more about the social aspects and just like fielding questions from people and like dealing with like the pressures of like, you know, being a prominent open source maintainer. And fortunately, that is something where also like community members can help out a lot. Evan gave a great talk at Strange Loop this year um, about that. It's called uh, The Hard Parts of Open Source. And it's really all about like 
soft stuff. It's not really like the technical aspects uh, so much as, you know, interacting with people. And to the extent that like the community gets bigger and the core team gets more solidified and, and we're able to sort of like talk to people about these things in a way that like, you know, doesn't misrepresent like what Evan's working on. That's at least uh, in part a way to like help like alleviate some of that pressure. Whereas like in the early days when it really was just him working on it, he really just had to kind of like field all of that himself personally. And now we at least have some other techniques to deal with it. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, he mentioned, he brings up this topic in the talk, you know, being like kind of like the single point of failure for, at least for the compiler, you know, what happens if Evan, you know, decides, you know what, I want to pack it up and and become a bean farmer. Well, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, that would be really bad. I mean, that would that, that would really hurt the project. There's kind of no no escaping that. But at the same time, it's also like, well, there's also not really like an easy solution. It's like the reason that he's so valuable and, and such a like, you know, central figure is that it's really hard to find someone who has all of the different, very niche skill sets, you know, required to, to do what he does intersecting in the same person. So uh, I don't think Elm would exist without Evan. And it's also hard to like replicate that. So kind of, a, it's, I don't really see a way out of it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it totally makes sense. It's a great question by Amy. I have a much simpler question. Okay. <laughs> when will we see Elm go to like 1.0? That is a great question. So uh, our feeling on 1.0 is that basically when you go to 1.0, it means that like enterprise customers can rely on it to like uh, be pretty stable and not have like breaking changes, at least not for like a pretty long cycle. And I think uh, I've heard a lot of people say that they were really frustrated by Angular 1 making breaking changes, like big breaking changes going to Angular 2. And I think that kind of highlighted that like once you set that expectation, it's it's really hard to take it back. And, and a lot of people can feel really upset if you if you do make breaking changes after that or like big ones. And basically our feeling is that we know that there are still more breaking changes to come. And given that that's the case, we don't want to send the wrong message that like Elm is like has reached a point of stability that it just hasn't yet. So although like some people have said, hey, I don't want to use a technology in production that's pre 1.0. I mean, we've been using it for years in production and had an amazing experience with it. So I think it's definitely production ready. But I definitely also don't think that it's stable yet. I think you can expect breaking changes. And I mean, we've when we first deployed Elm, it was on 0.15. So we've had four breaking changes worth of releases. And so far, I mean, from my perspective, they've all been absolutely worth it. But I, I think it's important that people like know that that's something they can expect is like every, I don't know, year, year and a half, maybe, they're probably going to have to deal with like a breaking upgrade. And I, I think it's you know important to be upfront about that. Right, yeah, definitely. So I guess the short answer is... Um, I, I don't know when there's going to be a 1.0, but uh, <laughs> but our view is that that should be a pretty boring release where it's basically like we kind of look around and we're like, hey, it seems like stuff's been pretty stable and we don't really foresee any like breaking changes for a while. So like, okay, let's let's make that commitment. But, but at this point, we don't really see like, we know that there are more breaking changes coming, but we don't know when that will not be true anymore, except that it's like not yet. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... 
If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. I always love talking about uh, education. So what about people who are interested in checking out Elm? Like, where's the places they should be going and learn to learn Elm? Oh, man, what a setup. <laughs> uh, okay, so this might be a good opportunity for me to mention that I have some educational materials. Uh, so I, I briefly mentioned at the beginning of the um, the podcast, uh, I'm writing a book, uh, Elm in Action, for Manning Publications. So you can get the, the first seven chapters are out. I'm still working on the last three. But I mean, the first seven will get you all the way through like everything you need to basically uh, make a web app, except for like single page app stuff and some uh, some more advanced stuff, which are the last three chapters. Also, I've got uh, front end masters, the uh, introduction to Elm course. And then if you get deep into Elm, there's also an advanced Elm course now that I've done for them. Uh, also, I just I always like to recommend the uh, the guide, like the uh, the official Elm guide. It's a guide.elmlang.org. It's really well written. Um, it's all up to date. And I mean, the first chapter of Elm in Action is free, but the, the whole guide is free. So I always like to recommend that as like kind of the, the first resource for people to get started with Elm. Gotcha. Your front end master's course was done a while ago. You, you just updated it. Do you consider that to be like really the best, quickest intro to Elm? I think the best quick intro is the guide. I mean, the guide is is pretty. Um, uh, like, I would say the advantage of a of a book like Elm in Action or a workshop like the one I did for Frontend Masters is more depth. It's like kind of like slower paced and and a little bit more um, application focused. Like in the guide, it, it's kind Wait, of like. Is- so you're saying the course is slower paced and more application focused? Yeah. So in, in both the uh, the course and in the book, um, you're basically building up an application over the course of either multiple chapters or multiple sections in the workshop. So in the book, uh, it's basically a photo browsing app and you like go through and add features to it. And I've ordered it so that, the you know, as you add each feature, you're like learning a new concept along with that. And it's the same thing in the workshop, except with it's actually in the workshop. It's done with the uh, the Elm. Uh, SPA example, like the the uh, the real world app. Gotcha. All right. Well, um, what about you? Said you did a lot of conference talks, and yes, uh, from what little bit I know, it seems like you're always on the road. Like, uh, <laughs> how many talks did you give last year? I want to say it was ten, uh, which for me is a lot. But uh, and yeah. Well, I mean, but I'm like friends with Sarah Drasner who did like 40 or something. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's a machine. Yeah, that is her job or part of her that's job. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's I, amazing. One of many ways in which I cannot hold a candle to Sarah Drasner, but uh, <laughs> definitely for me, 10 is a lot. Uh, I've already got a bunch lined up for next year because there's going to be four Elm conferences next year, which is a, a new high. Which So it's going to be the fourth year of uh, ElmConf US the third Elm Europe in Paris, uh, the second Oslo Elm Day in Norway, and then the first uh, Elm in the spring in uh, Chicago. So hmm. that'll be uh, 
exciting. I haven't been back to Chicago in many years, so looking forward to some deep dish pizza and Elm. Do you know the theme <laughs> of any of these conferences? Because I feel like that would be interesting to kind of see where the community is headed. That's a great question. Um, I don't think any of them have a particular theme other than Elm. So with the exception of Elm Europe, so Elm Europe has always been a two-day conference and all the others are uh, one day, like single track. Actually, that might not be true. One of them might be two tracks, I forget. But basically, they're, they're all just like uh, a variety of Elm topics. None of them are really focused on like a sub sub thing within Elm. One of the things I've, I've heard is a common theme among Elm conference organizers is they like to focus on talks that basically are too Elm specific to fit in at any general front end conference, because otherwise those talks would just not really have a, a good place to be given. I think at least right now, that's that's enough of a, a filter that they end up with like a nice variety of content. And uh, I don't know if like focusing them more than that uh, is something that the organizers are looking for yet. Um, but I don't know, maybe in the next few years, we'll see that happen. Awesome. That brings me maybe to even another question. Yeah. Um, so I feel like certain communities are a little bit more diverse, like beginner friendly or that type of thing. Like I know in asking you this question, it might be skewed a little bit because you have like so many positive things to say, but in like your honest opinion, I mean, I do feel like the community is somewhat beginner friendly, but what are your thoughts on like how diverse it is? Like what's the diversity of the speakers there? And and I'm not just talking about gender. I'm talking about like where are people from? And is that something that you think the community might still need improvement on? Definitely. I absolutely think that's like a thing that the community could use improvement on and, and in kind of like multiple ways that you mentioned. So like, I I know that like definitely the majority of speakers at Elm conferences historically have been male. I also know that definitely like among backgrounds, it's, it's almost all web developers, like web application developers. There is a small minority of people using Elm for games and an even smaller minority of people using Elm for pretty much anything else. So like, I know there was uh, one guy gave a talk, he's like a retired math professor who gave a talk about using Elm for LaTeX, for um, like doing like mathematical diagrams and stuff. But I think that's like the one non-game, non... Oh, I guess there was one robotics talk actually, using Elm to control robots at um, at ElmConf US last year. But like other than that, I mean, they're, they're really few and far between. It's, it's, it's almost all like web app developers. So as far as like that background, as far as uh, gender background, I think it's like more homogenous than it could be. One thing that Evan's been talking about recently is like trying to um, engage more with people who are doing data visualization, like for science or for just like a, data for businesses, people who are like not interested necessarily in building a web app, but just more in like, I have a bunch of data, I'm trying to make like a a nice interface for exploring that data and learning things from that data, and presenting that data to people. And like Elm has some awesome libraries for that. But it's not really something where like, there's much community involvement yet there there aren't I don't think um, among people who like, for example, use R on the back end. I don't think there's much like knowledge uh, of like Elm as a possible other thing they could be using for data viz. So that's all of those areas, I think, are, are ways we could improve the diversity and, and should. Yeah. And I, I mean, I asked that too, because I think sometimes potentially other people who might not fit the typical stereotype. I think sometimes they look for like other people in the community that they could kind of look to to 
I don't know, just kind of like a role model in the community or something like that, or even like view has view vixens and all that kind of stuff. So it's just like maybe a little bit more welcoming for people who might not feel comfortable. Yeah, definitely. So, so we have um, Elmbridge in San Francisco. Oh, which awesome. Is, okay. Yeah. Like, so I, I moved from San Francisco to Philadelphia. I know we don't have an Elmbridge in Philadelphia, but I don't know what other cities uh, do have them. Is there a GitHub, like if people wanted to start one up for the one in San Francisco, that they could kind of follow the uh, the outline and stuff like that? Because I know oh, like... Yeah, yeah. The curriculum is shared. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, awesome. Okay, so that's a good idea. Yeah. For people and I think the next one's going to be in February, actually. Okay. So I guess depending on when this airs, we might be able to link to it. I don't think it's been announced yet as of I say these words, but uh, I know the organizer. So I think she's planning to do the next one. Like That makes forward. me very happy. Cool. Yeah. You're, well, you're in Nashville we, though, right? I am, but who is the organizer? Because I feel like listeners might be interested. Yeah, Renee Balmert. Okay. Do you happen to know her Twitter handle? Uh, I should, but I... <laughs> you can, we can always <laughs> drop it. We can try to drop it in the show notes. Yeah. I'll go look it up. Cool. Um, but she's not on Twitter very much. Uh, she's... Anyway. Um, but... I can find her on GitHub or something. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So this is not a leading question in any way, shape, or form, but going back to conferences, besides the Elm conferences, did you have a favorite conference you attended last year? Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay, so... (laughs) That was not a leading question. Um, It was purely active random Okay, so so this is like... I, I'm going to give the answer that you want, but actually maybe not for the reason that like most people would. So, so framework summit was, was an awesome conference. So it's Joe organized. So heads heads for the, the leading question jokes. Now, what was awesome about the conference for me though, and like, and this is just like totally unfair because no other conference did this was there was a, a creator's day where basically um, the, like the, on the workshop day of the conference. So we had people there from like core teams of you know several different projects. So React, Angular, Vue, Ember, Elm. And we all just got together in a room all day and just talked about stuff that like affected all of us. And so we talked about like, you know, internationalization and like web standards and all these different things. And I was just like soaking up perspectives and and like knowledge and just like just getting to to see how differently everybody feels about certain things and how similarly we all felt about other things and it was just this fascinating perspective that i have never gotten anywhere else and it happened to be at a conference so that's totally cheating but i mean i really can't compare you know like like i i have enjoyed lots of conferences at uh uh, maybe a, a more amusing anecdote. So if you've ever spoken at this conference, this may be as like, oh yeah, of course, that's just normal. But at Uridev in Sweden, this was the first time I spoke there and I got an interesting surprise, which is uh, uh, basically a series of events that led me to, along with other speakers, on purpose, jump completely naked into the Baltic Sea in November. Uh, oh this was something that many of us did after being in the sauna. <laughs> where I've been to saunas that are clothing optional and clothing required. And this is the first one I'd been to where it was clothing banned. That's just how they do it in Sweden. Basically, that was just like <laughs> what happened right before the speaker dinner. And they, uh, as one of the organizers commented, he's like, well, don't worry. After this, uh, standing up in front of a room full of people will be no problem at all and <laughs> giving a talk. Yeah, we, uh, we all did it. So that was uh, an interesting experience, to say the least. Very, uh, very memorable. Don't intend to do it again. Baltic Sea in November, very cold. Uh, right. don't, don't recommend. Yeah. <laughs> but it makes for a good story. How long did you last in the water before you... 
Oh, I, I immediately, I was like, I have to get out. That's not, <laughs> that wasn't a, that wasn't it was a one of those idea. things where like the water, like was still surrounded by a, the, your body was surrounded by an air pocket because you went in and out so fast. Oh, I wish. <laughs> like, no, it was like no, a cartoon. I mean, it was, it was up out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, I, like, I mean, just as soon as I get it, it's like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. I, I'm immediately. <laughs> no, I mean, it, like in all honesty, like, I mean, some of the European folks are pros and they're just like, oh, that was very refreshing. You know, I'm going to go back into the sauna and then go back out and do this a few more times. And I was like, nope, that was once once was enough. I'll go back in the sauna, you know, that. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a trip. It was uh very, very memorable. Not that I'm saying Framework Summit should do that, but, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, I'll take it under advisement. Certainly memorable. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I think the last thing that, I, I, another good question to just always ask is to, you kind of have this, I'm, you've just given it so much, right? It's like pitch of why people should be looking at and learning Elm. And I think it's probably, we're heading towards the kind of the end of time. So it might be a good thing to sort of just wrap up with your, kind of like your summary statement of uh, why Elm is the type of thing people really should be looking into? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, to me, the, the thing that is most exciting about Elm is the fact that it's, it's sort of going back to a clean slate and saying, how can we design a language that makes building UIs really nice? And I think JavaScript has come a really long way in like evolving from a, what was intended to be a, small scripting language used by non-programmers for really small interactions into something that huge enterprise applications are built on. But I think if if you try a language that was designed from the get-go to be excellent at that and the entire ecosystem around it, which is all in Elm and, and like the Elm packages are, are not actually based on JavaScript libraries, they're just all in Elm code. Just like the experience of using something that's like that well put together where everything just kind of works and gels really well together uh, it just feels wonderful. And I mean, the, the productivity like of our team, like one of my coworkers commented, like the UI I just built is so complex. I just literally can't imagine having built it and, and being able to maintain it without having Elm at our disposal. Just like the compiler is just so helpful and it's everything is so well put together that I don't know, I, I'm just like really happy to to be using it. And like, I, I honestly, at this point, I it's kind of like, ruined me as a career JavaScript programmer. I don't think I can ever go back. I mean, I don't think I can take another JavaScript job. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I've been uh, I've been very happy with it. Our team's been extremely happy with it. And um, I, I just encourage people to, to give it a try. Hey, guys. Let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear, I've used every project management software there is out there. And I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the REST. If you go to HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber. Okay. Well, Sweet. shall we uh, move over into picks? That's good for me. Sounds only good. got a headache. Okay. Amy, you want to go first? So my pick is going to be not technical this week, but I read it on Hacker News earlier and 
I don't know if it's just like the state of where I am in life right now, but I really, really, really enjoyed reading this. And uh, it's just called Most Lives Are Lived by Default. So it really just kind of talks about like how our lives just kind of fall into like these default traps. And in order to really shift our lives in a different direction, it's going to require a pretty significant change, whether that change be for the good or for worse. You just don't know until you take that chance. So whether it be like moving to a new neighborhood or getting a new job or moving like, you know, across the country or to a different country, it's all these things where, you know, people, it's like the article said, people are just kind of living by default. And usually people kind of feel like, I think he like pulled some people or something. People are kind of feeling like they're missing something. And that feeling persists because people don't usually have, whether it be the resources or what, but people just don't usually step outside of their comfort zone and take these chances to make things for the better. And like, he also talks about people that he pulled where, you know, he asked them like, what's the best thing that has ever happened in your life? And normally those types of things are like a big shift in someone's life, like a big decision that they made. So for me, I don't know, this year, I'm just really looking at the state of my life and Um, the direction I want to take things and really having to like dig deep and make some hard decisions about stuff. So yeah, I really like this post and it really had me thinking for a while. Awesome. (laughs) Is that everything? Yep. That's it for me. Uh, I am going to have only one pick today, which I usually try to do two or three, but it's because I have an incredibly huge announcement to make and Amy and Richard get to be basically the first people to hear it. (gasps) Yep. Is it good or bad? It's very good. Okay. Very good. Wow. The project I've been working on for the last year finally came to fruition just a couple of weeks ago. And I purchased Thinkster.io and uh, took it over from the StackBlitz guys, Eric and Albert, who uh, started StackBlitz. And so I'm going to be running in Thinkster.io, which is an online programming training website. Um, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. It's really cool. And uh, we're, it's also the owner of the real world repo. Yep. Talk about. <laughs> I realized well, it may coincidence. Sounded, yeah, it may have sounded bad when I said, well, I'm familiar with that, but because uh, there was no context there. So that's the context. Oh, no, I guess so. <laughs> right, yeah. So I'm really excited because uh, the website's kind of like been sitting around for like the last year, year and a half. And so I've, I'm going to be putting up not only just my content, but tons and tons of other content from other authors. And uh, I'm really excited to not only just put up content, but actually try it. We're going to be doing something different that hasn't really been seen in the online web uh, education space before. So wow. yeah, I'm really excited. But that's, that's my big else I pick is thinkster.io. Uh, by the time this comes out, which I think, I can't remember how long the delay is on, on this episode, but we actually should start having new content out by the time this gets released or pretty darn close. So yeah, go check it out. And that's my pick. Richard, you are up. All right. Uh, so I've got three. One is the, uh, the keynote that I gave at uh, Framework Summit. So uh, I got a link to that in the show notes. Basically, um, talked about sort of the the most recent developments in the uh, the Elm community, and as of the end of 2018. Uh, second pick is the Nix Package Manager. So this is something we've started using at work. It's really cool. Uh, so it's kind of like one way of thinking of it is sort of like homebrew, but cross-platform. 
the really cool part about it is that its dependencies are all sort of uh, fixed and uh, declarative. So we basically say, hey, here's the setup we want. And whenever somebody changes the version of like our database or of uh, any like command line tools that we use for our project, basically like when I pull that out of Git, uh, we just have a little like hook that automatically updates it to the latest Next thing, and Nix just takes care of like making me have the right version of that tool. So we haven't like kind of completely rolled it out for all of our tools yet, but the ones that are using it, it's been really great. So uh, highly recommend that. Check it out. It's, uh, it's it's pretty nice stuff. And the third one is uh, this book, A Philosophy of Software Design, by John Austerhout. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's really interesting. It's uh, it's this book uh, basically from a uh, a researcher or professor, um, but he's basically like done like some investigations into like different like software teams and things like that, and kind of come up with this philosophy of uh, like sort of like good software engineering practices that are sort of applicable across paradigms and across languages and and, and across um, like all sorts of different domains that have to do with things like the interface to implementation ratio and things like that. And he talks about like um, here are some like when we gave students this uh, this like exercise to build this thing. Here are some common like mistakes they made or ways that their their code could have been better than than other solutions, and it's it's really interesting stuff. And um, I, I found myself doing a lot of like, oh yeah, that is a, a pattern I've noticed that that really applies across different technologies I've used. And it's pretty rare for me to have that experience. Usually, if I read a book that's like that high level, I've I've found like, oh, this seems like kind of too specific, or maybe it's like, oh, this is only for Java stuff. Um, but this is uh, one of the first books I've read where I was like yeah, I, I think this is like pretty broadly applicable and I think it's right. So uh, that's, that's a rare thing and I'm, I'm happy to shout it out. That's cool. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Richard, for taking your time coming on the show. And uh, thanks for all the time and effort you spend contributing to the community as, as a whole and at large uh, from on behalf of not just myself, but obviously all the listeners thanks for entertaining us as well. And uh, one final thing I wanted to point out for all the poor listeners who don't get to actually see this amazing picture of Richard sitting in his closet but he looks pretty <laughs> dapper <in there. laughs> the acoustics are phenomenal yeah are great yeah, so that's been fun anyway uh, thanks again for being on the show and it looks like we hopefully have you on again soon yeah thanks for having me this is fun yeah yep thanks Amy we'll see everybody well we won't see everybody but we'll uh, here you again <laughs> in a week take care bye take care. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.